Our New Testament reading this morning is found in the book of Romans, chapter 12. And we will be reading together verses 1 through 8. Romans 12, 1 through 8. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service, in our serving, the one who teaches, in his teaching, the one who exhorts, in his exhortation, the one who contributes, in generosity, and the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. One more text, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Ephesians 4, 1 through 12. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You know, I read this passage of Scripture the first time I translated this passage of Scripture, and I had no idea what I was looking at. <laughs> this is one of the most wonderful passages of Scripture, and I hope before we leave that you have a taste of just exactly what that means. We've been looking at the first six verses last week, and we said 
that we're looking at an exhortation to church unity. We said that we need to have officers established in our church, but if we're going to choose the right officers, we have to be the right kind of people in order to choose those officers, right? We need to be a people who are united. We need to be one body, verse 4. We need to be one spirit. One, we need to have one hope of our calling. We all need to be united around one Lord and one faith and one baptism. We have a God and a Father who is of, of all and over all and through all and in all. But did you notice when we got to verse 7 there, did you notice the change in the language? We move from one Lord and one faith and one baptism to listen to these words, but to each one of us. We move from all, we move to, from unity to individual persons who have been given gifts, as we're going to see, by Jesus Christ. So we're moving from unity to individuals. And we think about it like this. You know, we have families, we have unit, fa families are family units. And when you look at a family, you know, that's a family. There's a family back there. I see a family back there. And a family's made up of a husband who's very different than a wife. We have to say that today. You know, I, I, took, I married somebody. Uh, I was the minister in California a few months ago. And I told every, all 120 people who were by this river, I said, Now, you are a man, and you are a woman. Don't ever forget it. And so in a family unit, there's a man and there's a woman. And they're very different. And then they have children. Maybe they have three boys and three girls. Some of these, some, we, got some three, we got some three girl families. And then we got some three girls and one boy families. And so when you see these families, they're made up of different kind of persons. And so we look at our kids and we all say, man, they all look kind of like us, but they all are different too, aren't they? And the same thing is true in the visible church. We love the oneness, but when you are born again, when you came to know life everlasting that we just sang a few moments ago, God did not make us replicas of each other. We studied about Simon Peter a few months ago. We said that God, Jesus is going to deal with Simon Peter in very similar ways that he would be dealing with us. Simon Peter needs to repent. We need to repent. Simon Peter needs to put his faith in Jesus. We need to put our faith in Jesus. Simon Peter needs to not, not to be confident in his own abilities and his own self. He needs to put his confidence in Christ. We need to learn those same things. But you know what? Not all of us are Simon Peters. And not all of us are Apostle John's. And not all of us are doubting Thomas's. All of those men make one family or one group of men called the Twelve Disciples, but not all are Simon Peter's. There is wonderful diversity, exciting diversity in the body of Christ. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, in order to move through this text, I want to give you some G's. The giver of the gifts, the gifts given. Now, it's interesting, this list only gives us a short list of all the gifts. These are the gifts that God gives to the church. And we're going to be looking at gifts, the men that we need to choose. And these gifts help us to choose the right folks to be our elders and our deacons. So the gifts given, we're going to be looking at a short list, not the huge list. And then third, we're going to look at the goal of the gifts. First of all, the giver of the gifts. Who is the giver of the gifts? And let me read that verse to you in verse 7 again. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So it's Christ who is the one who gives the gifts. 
He says, I'm the one who builds the church and I'm the one who gives the gifts. Each one of us receives a grace gift. That's a gift from Jesus. It's not something that you work up. It's not something that you conjure up. It's not something that you figure out on your own and you build up. But it's something that He gives to us. And they're gifts that are given to a certain measure. In other places, the apostle speaks of some differences. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, some people are eyes, some people are ears, some people are hands and heads, and some people are very visible and some are not so visible. And so here we're reminded, again, that that passage that Mr. Larson just read in Romans 12. How are we to exercise these gifts? In humility. Last week, humility gentleness, just like Jesus. We're to be tolerant. We're to be patient. We're to be loving. We're to be diligent about pursuing peace with all men. We're to say to ourselves, Jesus is the one who's gifted me. And I will go out and use my gift for the edification of the body and for the maturation of the community. Christ is the giver and Christ is an exalted giver. Now here we are. We're going to get into this passage that I'm sitting out deer hunting and I'm studying this passage. And the lights came on when I'm sitting under a tree. This is a fabulous passage. Listen to verse 8. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a captive, a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. That comes from, from Psalm 68, 18. David's reflecting on God's triumphant procession from Egypt all the way to the promised land. This is what David is thinking about. He sees God leading Israel out of Egypt. He sees them moving through the Red Sea. He, he sees Joshua leading the people into the land of promise. He sees all the kings scattering before Joshua as he leads them into the promised land. And David is reflecting on this. He sees this triumphal procession. And David is about to go into battle against some Ammonites and some mercenaries hired by these Ammonites. And he is praying that God would go with them as in the days of old. David goes out, he fights, he's victorious, he has the ark of God before him, and they start coming back to Jerusalem. And as he's coming back, it's a triumphal procession. He's leading a host of captives. Captives, these are enemies. These people are chained. They're being brought back to Jerusalem. And as they be, they're being brought back to Jerusalem, the crowds are on each side, and they're giving spoils of the war out to the people who are there. This is a great victory, and these Ammonites will be their trophies, and these Ammonites will be made to pay tribute to Jerusalem or to Israel. The same thing Paul says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, and it's alluded to in chapter 4 here in Ephesians. He's a prisoner. We're going to see that in a minute. But this, I don't know, maybe I'm going to go out on a limb here. Maybe some of you guys have seen Judah Ben-Hur. Have you ever seen the movie Judah Ben-Hur? Well, there's a, there's a part of Judah Ben-Hur in the movie where Quintus Arius comes through the city all the way to see the Caesar. And when he's doing this, he's in a chariot, in a big, white, beautiful horses, and all the crowds are on each side cheering this man on. He's had this great battle, this great victory. And he receives the, the pat on the head, if you will, from Caesar. And all these... Men who are chained and being brought in front of all the crowds, they're to be led out into the Colosseum. They will die as they fight against wild beasts in the Colosseum. That's the picture that's going on here. Except we see Paul, he's going to use it for our benefit. 
So in verse 7, we see that Jesus gives gifts to men. In verse 8, we see Christ is the general who's ascending with captives in his toe, along, going along with him into the heavenly places. And then verse 9 backs up a little bit and he tells us, listen, before he ascends, <laughs> this is where you get kind of tricked up, tripped up. Before he ascends with this host of captives in this triumphal procession, first of all, he has to descend. What, you know, you know, if you, you, you know, you're reading your Bible and maybe you, y'all listen to me so you know what this means. 10, 20 years from now, you'll know how to explain it to somebody. First of all, before he goes into the heavens and he gives gifts to men, he has to come down to this earth and he has to enter into the battlefield, Right? And so Jesus Christ, he's the second person of the Trinity. He puts on human flesh as we sing at Christmas. He puts on the human vesture in order to do battle against sin and Satan and death and hell. And so the Son of Man, who, who, through whom God the Father created all things, and apart from him nothing was created, he had to be conceived in the womb of the Virgin. We're, about to, we're, we're talking about rejoice and sing, right? Where's Ben at, right? And so we're thinking about Christmas, and we're thinking about this baby being born, and we're thinking about this low condition in which he was born, just like you and just like me. He had to grow up, he had to eat, he had to sleep, he got tired, he got hungry. He had friends that hurt his feelings, just like you and just like me. He had joy and he had sorrow. He understood human weakness. He knew what it meant to be loved. He knew what it meant to be hated. He knew what it meant to be denied by close friends. He knew what it meant to be betrayed. This is his descent. And even as he puts on this human body, one of the things the Bible tells us is he delighted to do the will of God. So he was constantly battling on this earth against the powers of hell. He set men and women free. In Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God is coming into the world but there's one more place to which Jesus must descend, and that was to the cross. He must descend to the cross. Philippians 2.8 tells us he must become obedient to the point of death, even to the death on the cross. And so he enters into Calvary's, let me say it this way, Calvary's hell. Now I say it's Calvary's hell because it's not the hell that was prepared for the devil and his angels. There are some theologians who believed that Jesus entered into that place, hell, for, that was prepared for the devil and his angels. But our, when we say in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus descended into hell, we do not mean that hell. We mean the hell that he went through in his soul mostly. If you go read your Bible, it does not say, if you watch any videos today of anything about Jesus dying on the cross, what they have to do is they have to emphasize the physical. But what they can't show you is what was happening in his soul. What they can't show you is what was happening in the garden of Gethsemane before he died when he was crying out to God. What they can't show you is what was happening in his, the horrors in his soul as God the Father turned away from him and left him there to absorb for three solid hours infinite wrath for the sinners that he died for. Can't see that. And so he goes to the cross. He becomes for three hours the worst sinner the world had ever seen, not for sins that he had committed, but for our sins. The sinless one for the sin sinners. 
And everyone there on the cross after he died, everyone would say that the captain of our salvation had been defeated. He died. He was taken off down from the cross. He was buried. His body was under the power of death for a time. Sure doesn't look like victorious Savior to me. Looks like sin and death and hell and the grave have the last word. This is the descent. This is the depths to which he went. But three days later, this person who has the power to lay his life down also says, I have the power to take up my life again. And he ascended. There we go. He ascended. He's going to give gifts to men. Now, we can go to Philippians chapter 2 and we can get really excited about the fact that he's going to be given the name that's above every name. But I'm going to stop here and not do that. We must remember that he ascended and he took with him a whole host of captives. And folks, listen, his captives are you and me. His captives are are believers. His captives are the ones who come to him by faith. The Apostle Paul says here in uh, 4 verse 1, he calls himself, therefore he says, I the prisoner of the Lord. I the prisoner of the Lord. He sees himself as a captive. Are you with me? He sees himself as one who's chained to the cross. Who would have ever thought that the victorious tool that God would use to save us from our sins would be a cross? But it was. And so on the cross, we are saved by what Jesus does. And now we come chained to the cross. Jesus is going in this procession, this triumphal procession. And you and I, we are are there uh, attached to the cross. We're chained to the cross. And, and okay, you know, we got people, oh, well, you know, you're a slave to the cross. You're a slave of Jesus Christ. You're a servant of Jesus Christ. You're in servitude. Who wants to be a serve, serve anybody? I'm going to be free. Well, friend, listen, you're most free when you're chained to Christ. You got that? Listen, should we say it again? You're most free when you're chained to Christ. Because when you're chained to Christ, let me, let me say this one statement. I'll say it over and over. The person who's chained to Christ is a person who's free to do what he ought to do. Did you hear that? Free to do what I ought to do. The truth shall make you free. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. I'm chained to Jesus Christ and I'm so free. I'm free to do what I ought to do. So here I am, I'm being, not being led to a Colosseum to be eaten up by a bunch of animals, but I'm being led to heaven with Jesus. I'm part of his triumphal procession. And as we move there, before we get there, Jesus is going to pass out gifts to us. He's going to give you gifts to go out and serve the body of Christ. So this is the giver of the gift. He's an, gifts. He's an exalted giver. Let's look at the gifts now. Look at verse 11. He says, And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. So here what the apostle is doing is he's going to show us four gifted persons. Now you can go look. at There's five different lists of gifts in the Bible. And if you go and you read them all, you'll find out that more than likely not all of them are actually listed. It's, it's, like, it's almost like dot, dot, dot. There's probably some that he didn't write down. But... Here, the focus is on these gifted persons because these gifted persons are going to lay down the foundation of the church and these last two gifted persons, there's two that are going to, we're going to look at that are extraordinary and there's two that are ordinary. And those last two are going to help us 
to figure out what our gifts are and help us use them for the glory of God. So let's look at the first two gifts, which are extraordinary gifts. First is apostles. Second is prophets. Now, what is this term apostle? What does it mean? The term apostle can be used in three different ways in the New Testament. It can speak of a, it speaks of a sent one. This is for my seminary student. A sent one. But you know, it's interesting. All of us are ambassadors. All of us are to be sent ones. All of us are in this regard. Those who stand up and we confess our faith in Christ in front of the congregation. I want all of you to do that. Right? I want all of you to do that. But I also want you to stand up and confess your faith in Christ at home and at work and at school. Every day, you're all ambassadors in that regard. We're all to give a reason for the faith that resides in a second. There's also apostle more strict, a more strict sense. There are those sent by the church. Now, we studied uh, the book of Philippians, and there's this guy named, let me say it really fast for you, Epaphroditus. This guy named Epaphroditus was the minister of the Philippian church, and the Philippian church sent Epaphroditus to see Paul in Rome to be their minister to Paul, sent one. And they, he took with him the gift they had of money for Paul. So a sent one from the church. But now we come to the more specific use of the term apostle. All of us are sent ones in one regard. All Some are sent by churches. But these are men, apostles specific, when it talks about Paul and Peter and others. We're talking about somebody who saw Jesus' resurrected body. We're talking about somebody who was chosen by Jesus to go out and be his sent one. What makes them extraordinary is they were eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Now, you can remember in Acts chapter 9, it's just an easy one to pull out. Paul, saw then, saw Jesus' resurrected body. That is one of their criteria to be a technically a, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He didn't see him in a dream. He saw him in real time, real space. It really happened. Second, not only that, but you have to be chosen by Christ personally. These men are chosen men authorized by Jesus to go out and be his sent ones to lay down the doctrine of the church, to write down the doctrine we find in our New Testaments. So these are the things that qualify them. Sometimes these men even did miracles to prove they had the real gospel. And then third, we find that they wrote their words down for us that we now call the foundation of the church. So these men are the apostles. When these men pass off the scene, there's no new revelation. We don't believe that there's any more revelation. We have what God gives us in what they wrote to us in the New Testament. The authority of their words are here for us. And ordinary men, we're going to see in a minute, they take these words and they preach these words. They preach an authoritative word, but we have no need for any more words. So all of us are sent ones in one regard. Some of us are sent by churches, and these men are particular men who are chosen just by Christ himself to go out and preach the gospel and establish the church. The second gift is that of a prophet. Now, these are another extraordinary gift in the Bible. These, these men also ceased. They, they, they also went off the scene, if you will. We see them popping up in the book of Acts. 
and they would work in association with the, with the, the, the apostles. And so we see in the Old Testament, one of the things that's really interesting about a prophet is this, these are people who would have extraordinary um, events in their lives where they would see what God wanted them to say. Sometimes they were called seers. That's why they were called seers. They saw a vision. And then in order to explain what they saw, they would be given words to explain what they saw, and they were, that's how they spoke. And so there were those who, many times when we think about prophets, we think about somebody forecasting the future. But most of the time, these men would stand up and they would take the word of God and under inspiration, they would explain the law of God to God's people. These men gave direction to the early church as well. They too passed off the scene. But now we find the prophets and the apostles' words left for us in the New Testament. Now we move to the two ordinary gifts and the two ordinary gifts are evangelists and pastor teachers. And as we said, you know, we talk about evangelists and pastor teachers. We talk about men who are, listen now, standing up and preaching what's in the Bible. They don't preach new stuff. They don't make up new stuff. We have what God has given to us in the scriptures, and it is the authoritative word that the ministers are to preach. Now, so let's talk about evangelists. The word evangelist is used three times in the New Testament. It's used, first of all, here, it's used here in Ephesians 4, and it's used also of Philip in Acts chapter 8. If you remember Philip, he went around and he was uh, evangelizing the Samaritans. If you remember also Philip, please, please understand that I'm teasing a little here, that the Holy Spirit basically sent him by parachute into the Ethiopian eunuch's chariot so that he might explain to him Isaiah 53. Right? We don't know exactly how he got there, <laughs> but we know he got there. But he's an evangelist. Now, this is a, he's a cool person. We're going to talk about him in a minute. But the Apostle Paul also tells, oh, Timothy, preacher to the Ephesian church, he says, do the work of an evangelist. But now let's go back to Philip for a second. Philip was what kind of a person? Philip was a deacon. Philip was elected, like we're talking about leaders, to be elected. Philip was a deacon. He was chosen by the congregation in Jerusalem. Because he was a man full of faith and full of wisdom, he was chosen to be a deacon to go out and to do the work of serving tables and caring for the physical needs of the church. But he was also a gifted evangelist. And I think there's something here for us. Because you see, there's evangelists, and there's deacons who do evangelism, and there's mamas who do evangelism. Because evangelism is not just for the preacher. It's all not just for the deacon. It's for every one of us. And so you say, well, now, Pastor, I'm not doing evangelism work. Oh, yeah, you are. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We talked about it yesterday. Somebody was sitting in front of us the other day and said, you know, we're singing songs with our kids. Oh, that's evangelism. You're singing about Jesus. You're talking about Jesus with your mom. You're talking about Jesus with your family. You're talking about Jesus with your son. You're talking about Jesus, and you read the Bible, and you pray. And folks, just start doing it, just a little, <laughs> with your family. And so that's evangelism. All of us are doing this work of evangelism as we have opportunity. But Jesus gives some men this gift to do this work. I told you last week, when you call a mission, a pastor to a, to a church, a mission work like this, he's called an evangelist. He's called an organizing pastor, and he's called an evangelist. And so the, the job that I've been called to do here is to gather people, but I wasn't the first person here. 
There were some other persons here before me. There were the Larsons here. They were the first persons who were here. And then the Sumters came along. And then there was Bible studies. They started. And then there was this ministry that took place during the hurricane season, 2017. And so these things are going on, and things begin to happen. And people begin to go out and knock on doors. And people begin to invite people to church. And people begin to know more about this place. Until finally, this congregation, I'm going to put it in good Presbyterian terms, this congregation petitions the Presbytery for a minister. And so it's all working, Lord willing, uh, for a plan. And the goal is to gather people to this place, and you are part of it. And so the goal is to gather people who do not know Jesus Christ. It's to tell people who are starving for God's Word. Tell them how, uh, give them a place to be nourished. And it's a place where you and I can be matured according to God's Word. And part of building our church is to establish officers. Now, what's the goal of an evangelist? You can't, can't talk about being an evangelist without t- telling the gospel. What is, the, what is evangelism? The evangelist needs to be able to clearly spell this out. I think everybody in here knows this verse. You know Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. And that's what the evangelist has to do. He has to tell men and women that they are at odds with God. But you know what's interesting about doing this in our day? It's, it's been the same most of the time. It's always been the same. People live in this world, and not being a Christian is so normal, they have no idea they're out of kilter with God, that they're out of sync with God. They have no idea. And so it's the, it's the important thing for the evangelist to put, as Evan and I have talked about recently, put a pebble in somebody's shoe. Now, if you put a pebble in your shoe, do you want to get it out? Does it bother you? It bothers you. And so that's what the evangelist is to do. The evangelist is to seek to point out to somebody that there's a problem between their soul and God. There was one of my ladies, I was training her one day, and she told me, she went all the way through the eighth grade in her church, she told me, listen to this, she said, I know all things Christian. Did you get that? Let's let's labor one more time. I know all things. All things Christian. You know what I said to her? I said, do you know all things Christian? All? She didn't talk to me for two days. Because she got it. I called her out. All I had to do was say, you know all things Christian? I just put a pebble in her shoe. Now, this is a woman who would not gonna, not, she wasn't going to just not come work out. But from on Wednesday and th- on Friday, I told her what to do, and she did not talk to me. Got a pebble in her shoe. There's a problem. There's a problem, Houston. Houston, we have a problem, right? There's a problem. And so she saw that she had a problem. Now, the only solution is God, something that God has to solve. God basically is saving us from himself. He's a holy God, and he is... His wrath is against sin. And the only way He can save us from Himself is He has to provide a sacrifice. And that's through Jesus Christ. You and I, we've been born in sin. We've been born in sin and we're sinners by choice. We're sinners by practice. We need somebody to save us out of our sin. And give us a new life and give us a new heart. So that we don't just love sin all the time. And think about it all the time. But we think about 
spiritual things. And God gives Jesus Christ to do what? To descend first. <laughs> to come to this earth for us first. And then to ascend. He saves us through the work of His own Son. We called it last week on Sunday night. We went and heard a sermon in corner, at Cornerstone OPC. And he talked about, Pastor Brack talked about the great exchange. Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. Our sins are imputed to Jesus Christ. And His righteousness is imputed to our lives by faith. That's the great exchange. If you don't, listen, I made a mental note when I said this in my mind. I thought, you know, if you don't understand that, talk to me after church. Talk to me after church. Let's talk about that. Finally, he gave some as pastor teachers. This is sometimes pastors and teachers, or sometimes it's called the office of pastor teacher. In the OPC, we call it minister. But Jesus Christ, he's the shepherd of the flock. He's the chief teacher. And he calls men to go out and, and teach. He calls men to preach. He calls men to tend the flock and protect them by preaching the word. The primary goal of this gift is to feed the flock. And in order for the pastor to do this, he has to interact with the people. He has to be with the people. He has to pray for the people. He has to think about the people and be in their lives. It's wonderful to be in your lives. It's for the glory of God. It's for the good of your soul. But before the minister can be with you as he ought, before the minister can preach to you as he ought, he has to do something. You know what that is? He has to be with God. He has to be with God. He has to look after his own heart before God. He has to interact with God and wrestle with God. He's called, when, when a minister's called, it's a sacred trust. And that man is to go and get alone. The book of Ezra talks about, Ezra talks about it in chapter 7, verse 10. He says that he devoted himself, first of all, to God. Then he devoted himself to the law of God. And then he devoted himself to obedience to the word that he studied. And then he went out and told others about it. That's the order. That's the order. And so it's a sacred trust where the man gets with God, he walks with God, and then he can share with you what he learns from God. And so when you look for a pastor teacher, you're to look for a man who stands in the pulpit and he loves God. And you need to look for a person, when you look for a pastor teacher, who doesn't preach fantastic and fan fancy sermons, but preaches meat and potato sermons that nourish your soul. And regularly. You need to look for a man who's going to confront you about your sins and teach you about the forgiveness of God for your sins. You're going to have to look for a man who seeks to conform you and talks about being conformed to the image of Christ and that you, your mind be transformed by the renewing of your mind by the Word of God. You need to look for a man who will comfort you in the midst of all your distresses. Well, first, the giver of the gifts. Second, the gifts. Third, the goal. What's the goal of all these gifts? Why does Christ give us these gifts? Well, ultimately, it's for the building up of the body of Christ, and immediately it's for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service. That's there in verse 12. Have you noticed what the model for the church is? Many of us have, have grown up, and we know that model is like a pyramid. The preacher's at the top and everybody else is underneath him. 
right? And there's committees underneath him, but he's like the CEO. He runs the company. Or maybe it's like a bus driver. The, have you ever think about the guy driving the bus? He pushes the button, the door opens, and all the people get in, and he just drives around with all the people in tow. That's not the, the model of the church. The model of the church is a body. And the gifted men are going to take the Word of God, and they're going to teach you what the apostles and prophets wrote, and build your lives upon what they wrote, and then you and I are going to find out that the Bible teaches us that we're not to have one president over us, but a plurality of men, elders over us, to lead us and guide us and tend us and care for us. This is what our Bible teaches. And so we have this group of men we call elders. The pastor is an elder along with the other elders. And they shepherd us. And they teach us. And they protect us. They protect us from error. They teach us to love the Word. They teach us to live the Word. And as we go out and love the Word and live the Word, we can go out and be a Christian body known by our love. And so may the Lord use our love to draw the world to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for teaching us about the gifts that are in, this, in the church. And we pray, Father, that as we focus on your word, the apostles and prophets who've laid down this New Testament, uh, Lord, upon which the, the Old Testament, the New Testament upon which our church is built, Father, we pray that we would hold fast to the authority of your word. We pray for men uh, Lord, for a minister, Lord, to hold fast to the truth, to the authority of your word. We pray that we might be those who submit to it. We pray, Father, that you will continue to help us to grow in our knowledge of, of who we look for when it comes to a minister and elders and deacons as we move through this study together. And we pray, Father, that we would have a body, a body that loves the truth, a body that lives the truth. And, Lord, as we go out in this world, that we would be known by our love. We'll praise you for it. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.